This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, Todd Billings, who is professor of theology at Western Seminary, starts off his recent book entitled The End of the Christian Life with a question, with a question. He asks this, if you knew that you could live to be 1,000 with your body oscillating between the biological ages of 20 and 25, when would you start to think about death? Super exciting question, I know. <laughs> if you could live to be a 1,000, when would you start to think about death? Perhaps, he says, the first 990 years or so would be full of safety and pleasure, like Disneyland without the high prices. For if you no longer had to fear death because of aging, you would likely consider a life of hundreds of years to be what you deserve. However, here's the key, however, even apart from the question of how much wealth and resources you would need, this vision of flourishing upon reflection is illusory. It's impossible. He asks, what about violence or virus pandemics? car accidents, and natural disasters, would not the fear of these ways to die be magnified? Is it even possible to live as if there is no end in sight? Is it even possible to live as if there's no end in sight? For Billings, the answer to this question is an ever-present no. A few years ago, Todd Billings was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And ever since that moment, he's been aware that his end is coming sooner than later. Before being diagnosed, Todd Billings was a flourishing father, a husband, and a theologian. He was married. He had kids. He taught full-time. He wrote books. He lectured across the country and by all accounts was living what we would all say is probably a pretty good life. But one morning, he woke up with chills and nausea that just wouldn't go away, and suddenly, his good life as a father, husband, and professor became the very mortal existence of a cancer patient. His following months were spent undergoing chemo, seeing doctors, lying in bed, throwing up, losing hair, having blood transfusions, and in all of this, his life became what we all try so hard to avoid. Today, Todd Billings is alive, his cancer is being managed, he teaches, he writes, he spends as much time with his family as he can, but in the back of his mind is the ever-present reality that his terminal cancer could, at any moment, rear its ugly head and end his life. So when he asks, is it even possible to live as if there is no end in sight, he's living proof that definitively it is not. You see, no matter how much we try to avoid it, the end will find each one of us, and like Todd Billings, we will be in the shadow of our own death. And yet, it is precisely in the moment of his greatest weakness and despair that Billings has found his greatest hope. Billings says, in my own journey of treatment and coming to know others in the cancer community, I've realized that the process of embracing my mortality is a God-given means for discipleship and witness in the world. As strange as it seems, coming to terms with my limits as a dying creature 
has been a life-giving path. Church, as strange and as paradoxical as it sounds, the reality is that when we are faced with our own mortality, with our own end, when we are at our weakest, we have the opportunity to know and experience the greatest hope. Because when we are at our weakest, we can either allow the shadow of death to consume us or we can grab on to that glimmer of hope that will lead us to a greater light, a greater hope than we have ever known. And so as we come to our text today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for our sermon titled Comfort for the End, we are going to see that the Thessalonian church was faced with their own mortality and was living in a similar shadow of death. People in their community had died, some may have been on the brink of death, and they were searching for what to do and how to respond. And what happened is, because they were so overcome by grief and fear, they started living as if nothing mattered. Their decisions changed, their work suffered, they cared less for other people, and they allowed their grief to change them into hopeless people. Because they feared and were uncertain about their own mortality, they lived accordingly. And church, I think that just like these Thessalonians struggle to find hope in the shadow of death, we too are fearful of what awaits us when we die. And that fear often causes us to live now as if our death or the death of those around us is a hopeless end. And rather than embrace our mortality in a way that frees us to truly live now, we distract and insulate ourselves or we convince ourselves, you know, we just won't ever die. And we try to avoid it as long as we can. And when we step back, if we step back and think about it, I think we know intuitively that this is how we live. Right? This is how we live. Because if we weren't trying to avoid our own mortality, then we wouldn't go out of our way to distance ourselves from death by spending so much money on things like anti-aging solutions or on trying to look like our younger self or on doing whatever we can to avoid the reminder of death's inevitability. But so often, so often, because we cannot even stand to consider our own fate, we allow our fear of death to take hold of our mind and our beings, and instead of living as a people over whom death has no hold, we live like death is the end. But what we will see in this passage is a message of comfort that is greater than our mortality. What we will see is the kind of comfort that allows us to live today as people who have embraced our finitude such that we are live freer lives because of it. What we will see is that Paul's message to the Thessalonian church and his message to us, which is also our big idea, is that in the shadow of death, we can find life-changing comfort in Jesus and his return. In the shadow of death, we can find life-changing comfort in Jesus and his return. 
And so as we journey throughout this passage, Paul is going to show us three reasons why we can find life-changing comfort in the shadow of death. Three reasons why we can find life-changing comfort in the shadow of death. To start, look with me at verse 13. Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, right off the bat, when we read this verse, we're met with both a strange statement about those who have died. Paul says they're asleep. I don't know of anyone who says people who died are asleep. So Paul says they're asleep, as well as an encouragement to not grieve as others do who have no hope, but to instead grieve like people who do have hope. So to get at Paul's point here, we need to answer two questions. First, what does Paul mean when he says people who are dead are actually asleep? Like, how could he say that? What does he mean by that? And second, what does it look like to grieve without hope versus grieving with hope? What, what does that look like? How does that matter to us? Let's look at the first question. What does Paul mean that the dead are merely asleep? Well, to answer this, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. Mark chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. And as we come to Mark 5, we see Jesus early in his ministry career. He's been performing miracles and drawing large crowds of people eager to see him in action. And in Mark 5, 38, we see that Jesus has been given word of a young girl who died, and he's on his way to meet with her family and see the girl. And so Mark tells us, starting in 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. They is Jesus and some of his disciples. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Sleeping, there's that word. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12, and we know 12-year-olds can walk. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. They were immediately overcome with amazement. The remarkable point of this story is that this girl was in fact dead. We know this because the people at the house laughed at Jesus when he said the girl was asleep because by any human account, this girl was indeed dead. However, what Mark tells us is that for Jesus, the death of this girl is no more powerful than if she were asleep. For Jesus, the death of this girl is no more powerful than if she were asleep. And this is exactly what Paul is thinking of when he tells the Thessalonians he doesn't want them to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Paul knows that the Thessalonians are grieving people who have actually physically died, just like the family of the young girl in Mark. But just like Mark, Paul knows that for Jesus, death and sleep, like walking on water or walking on land, for Jesus is no different. 
Because to Jesus, death has no more power than sleep. As easily as he could wake a light sleeper from a nap. Any light sleepers? Yeah, it's easy to wake you. As easy as he could wake a light sleeper from their nap, Jesus can wake people from death. This is why Paul refers to death as sleep. That's the first question. The next question we must answer then is what does it look like to be a person who grieves without hope versus grieving with hope? What does that look like? Well, what's important here is we have to recognize that the Thessalonians were heavily influenced by Greco-Roman culture and the world around them, specifically ancient Greek philosophy, and that the Thessalonian church was no more impervious to outside philosophies than we are today. What was especially common in Greek philosophy was this notion that this life is all that exists, and after death there is nothing. You live, you die, you go into the ground and become part of it. That's it. And we've seen this, for example, through archaeological recovery where it was discovered that one Greek philosopher had written on his tombstone an inscription which read, Into nothing, from nothing, how quickly we go. Into nothing, from nothing, how quickly we go. Another Greek inscription said, friends who read this, listen to my advice, mix wine, tie the garlands around your head, drink deep, and do not deny the pretty girls the sweets of love. For when death comes, earth and fire consume everything. Everything. In both cases, the belief in any sort of hope after death is non-existent. While some ancient Greek philosophers believed in a spiritual existence after death, the overwhelming belief was what we could consider the first century's version of YOLO. They thought you only live once, so you may as well mix wine, drink deep, and not deny pretty girls the sweets of love because when death comes, everything is over. And as we can imagine, just like the things we think now are often influenced by non-Christian voices, so too, for the Thessalonians, this type of thinking influenced them and would have made death an incredibly hopeless experience, both for the person dying and for their loved ones, because if this life is all that there is, if this is all that there is, then death becomes an event of unending sorrow. It's horrible. Unfortunately, even now, we see this type of sorrow all around us, right? A few years ago, my wife Mariah and I were in Nepal, and while we were there, we visited one of the largest Hindu temples in the world in Kathmandu. And this temple, it's mostly outdoors with, you know, monkeys running all around. And uh, in the middle of this temple, Right in the middle runs a river. And the practice at this temple is that when someone dies, they lay the body of the deceased onto some type of raft, and then they light it on fire so that the body just floats down the river and its ashes go into the water where they can begin their reincarnation process. And on the day that we visited the temple, there was a funeral taking place at the river, and sitting on top of the river in a raft was the body of a dead person. And as I watched the body of this person burn and float down the river, I saw 
behind it a naked woman walking in the river, which if you know anything about Hindu culture, you know that something like hand-holding is too much. It's shameful. And so to be naked in public is incredibly shameful. And as I watched this naked woman walk, she was shrieking and crying and covering her body with the water and the ash of the deceased as it burned off of them. Because the hope of reincarnation or whatever she may have believed was insufficient in comforting her, this woman humiliated herself in her grief. This is the type of grief I envision Paul speaking of when he describes grieving without hope. Paul then is saying, don't grieve like the people who have no hope, who may even humiliate themselves in their grief and who grieve as if this life is all they have. He's saying to not be swayed by those who say that when death comes, it is as if we have lost everything. Instead, Paul is both inviting and giving permission to grieve in light of the hope we have in Jesus. Paul understands the necessity and the reality of grief, yet he is saying to Christians, in your grief, remember who you hope in. Trust in Jesus, for whom death is no more powerful than sleep. Remember that Jesus can speak new life into the dead. Remember. And if I could pause here for a moment, I think it's important to note that Paul is not advocating for us to avoid grief or pretend like death and trauma are things to avoid. In actuality, Paul is advocating for the opposite. Paul sees grief as something we should enter into with one another so that we can find healing and comfort. Just as Jesus wept for his friend Lazarus, so too we grieve the death and pain of those around us. And yet, what sets Christian grief apart from others who grieve is that we have the God of peace and the God of comfort with us in our grief. And because of that, we can hope in Jesus' resurrection power. So why can we find life-changing comfort in the shadow of death? Paul gives us reason number one, because to Jesus, death has no more power than sleep. Because to Jesus, death has no more power than sleep. Let's continue and look at verse 14. Paul here tells the Thessalonians, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The crux of Paul's concern here is right at the beginning. The ESV translated, as we just read, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, but the Greek uses a word with much more uncertainty than since. And if you're curious, the Christian Standard Bible does a really good job of showing this because really what's happening is Paul is setting up an if-then statement saying, if we believe this one thing, then we will also believe this other thing. And here is his if-then statement. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then we will also necessarily believe that through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
But in this, we cannot agree with the second part of the if-then statement if we do not believe the first part, right? That's how they work. Therefore, the question Paul really wants us to ask is this. Do we believe that Jesus died and rose again? Do we believe that? And really, more than that, does our worldview and the way we think about things like life and death and everything that's in between reflect our belief that Jesus died and rose again? Do we believe that Jesus died and rose again? Because if we do, then we will also believe the second part, that God will bring with him out of their grave those who have died, or as Paul says, fallen asleep. Do we believe this? We believe this. I've had a few moments in my life um, where this question of belief has been tested, and one moment in particular tested it more than others. When I was in high school, I was in our church youth group. We had a group of no more than like 10 or 12 people. It was a small group. And before my junior year, the guys in that group and I took a trip to the Upper Peninsula in Michigan to serve. And a few days into that trip, my friend Eli, along with another boy that we'd met there in the UP, both drowned while we were swimming at Lake Superior, right in front of my eyes. And as I think back, there are snapshots from that day that stick with me more than anything. Snapshots. I remember kneeling down in shock on the beach as the Coast Guard sent divers in to recover Eli's body. I remember standing with my friends in the sand, hoping, praying, begging that Eli would be okay as they carried him on a stretcher to the ambulance. I remember being at the hospital, praying harder than I've ever prayed before that Eli might live, and I remember the moment the doctor told us that Eli died, and it just felt like time stood still. Everything stopped. I also remember random things like how my eyes hurt because in the chaos of that day, I lost my contact solution and thought that using water instead of saline would be okay. And in case you don't know already, it is not. I remember calling my parents from a hotel and just feeling so glad to hear their voices. And all throughout that day, I remember asking God, how? How could you let this happen? How could my friend be dead? How come I couldn't have saved him? How come it couldn't have been me who died? How could you possibly be good and let this happen? How? How? And after the whirlwind of coming home and having the funeral and entering back into normal life, my questions remained unanswered. And I was deeply hurting. And, I mean, to this day, when August 5th rolls around, the day he died, I still grieve. I still remember him and all that happened. But at some point, at some point in the months after his death, I reached a moment of reckoning where either my grief was going to swallow me or I would start to step forward and heal. Either I would stay in the shadow of death, scared and angry and afraid, or I would reach for that little glimmer of light and just start to step towards it. And along with months of therapy, what allowed me to do the latter and start to walk forward was having to answer Paul's question. 
I had to decide if I believed that Jesus died and rose from the dead and that he had the power to raise Eli or not. I had to do something with that. I still wanted to know, and to this day, I wish I knew why Eli had to die or why a good God would allow such a thing to happen. I still had questions. I still have questions. But when I read the gospel writers in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and John, tell me of this Jesus who did things no normal human could do, like heal people from diseases with a touch and say things no normal human could think of, like I am the water of life, drink for me and you will never thirst again, and who died unjustly and who raised from the dead and who promised to return and raise to life those who have died. When I read these things, I could do nothing else but believe that what these people were saying had to be true. It had to be true. It was too good not to be. And this belief changed my life. I believe I absolutely still grieved Eli just as I do today. But I had a hope and a life-changing comfort that was greater than my grief. Yes, Eli died, but yes, Jesus would raise him from the dead. And as truly as I believed Jesus died and rose again, I believe he will come back and raise Eli and me and those of us who have faith in Christ from the dead too. God gave me faith to believe, and because I believed in Jesus' death and resurrection and in his return, I had a comfort, and I still have a comfort that is greater than any grief I've ever known. It's greater. Church, this is the comfort we have in Jesus. This is it. In the midst of our weakness and when faced with death, we have a comfort that is greater than anything else the world could offer. Because Jesus has defeated death and raised from the dead, we can trust in his promise. We can trust in his promise that he will raise us with him. And it is this very belief that is the key of Paul's message. It's why Paul asks, do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? Because if you do, then you can also believe that Jesus will bring with him out of the grave those who have died and fallen asleep. And if you're here, if you're here and you don't believe, or if you're not sure how to believe this, but you want that comfort today, you can have it. Today you can have it. Today you can find the rest and the comfort that is greater than any you could find elsewhere. All you have to do is trust and believe this is true. Please, come find me after service. I'll be standing somewhere up here, or Ashley, or Robin, or find someone next to you if you have questions. There's hope and comfort available for you. Just believe. Just believe. So why can we find life-changing comfort in the shadow of death? Well, Paul gives us reason too. It's because Jesus rose from the dead and has the power to raise us. Because Jesus rose from the dead and has the power to raise us. It's amazing news. We still have a little bit more. 
We want to know Paul's third reason here, why we can find life-changing comfort in the shadow of death. So look with me, if you would, at verses 15 to 17. Paul says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, I know that when we read this passage, there are many of us who presume that what is being described here is the rapture. A lot of us who grew up in Christian homes in the last like 20 to 30 years have been especially affected by this idea of rapture and may have even had moments, let me know if this sounds familiar, moments where we walked into our parents' house as children, saw laundry on the floor, and freaked out for a moment because we thought our parents had been raptured away to heaven, leaving us horrible sinners to now face the thousand years of tribulation on our own. As a 10-year-old, that was terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. However, Despite what we may assume to be true of this passage, what Paul says is something a bit less fear-invoking and a bit more comforting. In fact, when Paul says in verse 17, then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The word there that Paul uses for meet the Lord in the air is actually a technical Greek term describing a time when a dignitary would pay an official visit to a city or like a king would come home from a long journey, and the action there of the citizens going out of the city to meet the dignitary, and then escort him back to the city for the final stage of his journey. And Josephus, who is a first century historian, even uses this word to tell of a time, this one time he paints this picture, this king was coming home from a journey, from war, and when he was just a few miles outside of the city, so many people heard that he was coming home that they came out to greet him, that there were more people outside of the city greeting him and ushering him back than there were left in the city. So like think Macy's Day Parade, but like outside of New York City and then brought back in. It was this huge event. And so while some of us have always assumed that this is a description of the rapture where Jesus secretly steals away the real Christians, the picture Paul paints here is of a loud, joyous, incredible event. What Paul is describing is that when Jesus comes back, it will be like a king returning from a long journey. His archangel will make the loudest of sounds, declaring to the world, Jesus is coming! At which point Jesus will raise those who have died with faith in him, and they plus those who are alive will go up to greet Jesus and with much joy and celebration, they will escort him back to earth where Jesus will be with his people forever. Paul is not describing a quiet, scary event. Paul is describing the most joyous moment we could ever imagine. 
a moment when our friends and family who died trusting Jesus will literally be raised from the dead like that girl in Mark, and we, together with them, will meet Jesus and then come back to earth. And Jesus, as he returns with us, will transform the earth from the broken place that it is now into the glorious new creation it was always intended to be, except this time it will be a city and not a garden. And instead of dirty sidewalks, we will have streets of gold. Instead of death and decay, there will be new life and flourishing because Jesus will have returned and raised the dead and given us new life where we will be with him forever. I can't think of better news. I can't think of better news. Therefore, Paul tells us that the third reason we can find life-changing comfort In the shadow of death, no matter the loss we have faced or the things we have heard, is because when Jesus returns, he will raise to life all who have faith in him to dwell with him for eternity on a renewed earth. Because when Jesus returns, he will raise to life all who have faith in him to dwell with him for eternity on a renewed earth. That is such good news, such good news. Paul closes in verse 18 saying, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And some translations say, comfort one another with these words. And really, Paul's instruction here is directly informed by his vision of what it means to live in community. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul expresses how he's been so encouraged by the faith of the Thessalonians that in his own distress and affliction, he has found comfort because of their faith in God. Paul sees Christian community as a fellowship of mutual encouragement where in our distress and sadness, we comfort one another. And so now Paul is telling the Thessalonians that just as they have been a comfort to him, so too they should comfort one another by the hope they have in the return of Jesus. Paul knows that the sadness and the fear of death, the Thessalonians' face is real. He knows that. And he also knows that facing suffering and isolation is unbearable. And so Paul tells the Thessalonians, when those around you are sad, when they're grieving, when they feel like they can't handle the pain of life, comfort one another with the hope of the resurrection. Comfort one another with the hope of Jesus' return. And church, and this is the same expectation that Paul has for us now. We're to be a community of encouragement in the midst of grief. And it gives me joy. I mean, we're doing this already. I see it. I see us doing this. I see us comforting each other in sadness and suffering. And so for us, Paul's encouragement here is that we would continue to do this all the more, that we would see people around us struggling and we would enter into that struggle with them, that we would not leave people to suffer or grieve in isolation, but that we would walk alongside of them and encourage them with the hope of the resurrection and the return of Jesus. And ultimately, this morning, I hope that we have experienced comfort even here and now in a Jesus who brings us comfort 
A Jesus who speaks new life to the dead as if they were sleeping. A Jesus who just as he died and rose again will raise to life people like Eli and those of us who believe in him. A Jesus who is coming back triumphantly with shouts of praise in such a way that we will meet him and escort him back to a flourishing eternity on earth. This is the Jesus in whom we hope. This is also the Jesus in whom Todd Billings finds comfort and hope every day, despite knowing his cancer could return and take his life at any moment. And as Billings concludes his book, he writes to us. He says, you are mortal, but not indispensable to the world. Your life will come to an end, and yet, in light of genuine Christian hope, a daily embrace of these realities can refresh our parched souls, freeing us to generously love rather than cling to methods of self-preservation. Rather than being a pathway to morbid despair, embracing the daily reminders of our mortal limits can free us to experience sorrow and joy as earthly pilgrims, strangers and foreigners, looking forward to a homeland that will be the very home of God. Church is people who find life-changing comfort in the shadow of death because of Jesus. We are freed to live unafraid of our own mortality, being a comfort to others because Jesus has so comforted us. Of course, there still feels like there is unknown because there is unknown, and Death still feels like a horrible reality because it is. It is a horrible reality. But this morning, right now, we can take comfort in knowing that Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he will raise the dead to life. And because of that comfort, we can comfort each other knowing that there is no pain. There's no sorrow. There's no grief that's greater than Jesus. Church, Jesus knows our pain. He's in it with us. And he offers us life-changing comfort in the shadow of death. Pray with me. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.